Blog Talk Radio. Internet land. This is the 411 Ground and Pound Radio Show, your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. I'm Robert Winfrey. I'm your host. On the uh, on the schedule for tonight, the agenda. I don't know why I couldn't think of that word. On the agenda for this evening, a review of last night, UFC 215. We lost the main event on Thursday evening. Ray Borg decided uh, he didn't want Demetrius Johnson to make him float, I guess. Yeah, I saw it. I'm a big Stephen King fan. I will. Pr- I promise to make no more references. Um, that fell through, but eh, the main card was actually kind of okay. Uh, main event, yeah. But we'll be going over that. Some of the good, the bad, and the ugly, and there was all of that from UFC 215. We will also be looking ahead next week. Uh, UFC Fight Night 116. Um, it's a card. It's got a couple of, uh, there's one fight that I'm like kind of genuinely looking forward to as a fan of people, you know, inflicting harm on each other. Uh, so we'll go over that. Um, main event for that is Luke Rockhold and David Branch. That event's taking place opposite, uh, Canelo Triple G, which makes me sad because, uh, I actually (laughs) want to watch that fight, but, uh, this is an MMA show, so I'll keep my boxing commentary to a minimum. So that's what's kind of on the agenda. Uh, feel free to call in if you have questions or comments that can be addressed in 50 words or less, give or take. Uh, the number to do so is 323-657-0901. If you would rather tweet or you know send comment via some other form of written communication, feel free to tweet me at WinfreeMMA or utilize the Rattles and Broadcasting Network Facebook posts that has this player embedded on it. Uh, I should be able to keep track of all that, so if you'd rather send a question or a comment that way, feel free to do so. Happy to address any, any uh, things of that nature. All right. Uh, with that out of the way, let's introduce the panel here for, with me this evening. First up, and we're going to give him some kind of carte blanche for a bit because he's got uh, other things he has to do this evening. Uh, 411's Wildcat, he's in all the zones. Jeff Harris is with us again this evening. How you doing, Jeff? If her nose is rose, you must listen to her prose. I'm Jeffrey Harris. Now, I just want to say that um, my virus is not uh, weight-related, but it is weight-cutting related. <laughs> yeah, we've uh, we've got to talk about that. Um and back with us after missing last week because eh, work-related stuff. But uh, 
our East Coast guy holding holding down the fort from that side of the country, and resident pugilistic pontiff and amateur boxing historian Pat Mullen is with us. How you doing, Pat? Good evening, gentlemen. Good evening, listeners. The Raiders are back. Ah, football season. I don't so care. So are the Texas Longhorns. Fuck them horns. They won yesterday. Congratulations. Against San Jose. Oh, the best college football team in history. <laughs> All right. Um, before the team we get that into the defines who are, the word or the term college football, the Texas Longhorns. Who, they're number who are one. you to doubt San Jose? <laughs> oh god, I don't even in follow blood. I don't even follow. I barely follow professional football, uh, much less collegiate athletics. Uh, but oh god, you get. Uh, I get a laugh out of those every now and then. Also, okay, this is really random, but I forget where I saw this, but somebody wound up, like, linking me to the Deadspin articles that go up every year about why your team sucks. Oh, such a good one. I don't know why I had, was not made aware of those sooner, but those are hilarious. And, again, I don't even care much for American football. <laughs> so if if you haven't seen those, uh, here's a free plug for, you know, an article or a series that gets a lot of traffic anyway. Again, they're hilarious. Feel free to please look those up. All right. Before we get into the actual what actually took place at UFC 215, let's start with what didn't. Thursday, uh, before the event, in fact, I, did, I wasn't aware that this happened because I went to a you know, near-midnight showing of it because I'm a huge Stephen King fan. And I got back and was like, yeah, that was a great movie. I'm very happy. Come back home to the news that Ray Borg falls out of the fight with Demetrius Johnson, and oh, the universe is balanced again. Um, Jeff, I'll start with you because I know you have things you you're the one who said when they signed this fight, like, are we sure this is the best idea? Because you know, Ray Borg. Um, the chronology, if you feel like sharing it, and just kind of your thoughts on this whole situation. This was a stupid fight to make from the beginning. Ray Borg was not a worthy contender. He's not an elite flyweight. He's missed weight twice uh, in two out of his last four. Twice in uh, in his last four fights, he's missed weight. He's only won his last two fights, and only one of those fights was actually him fighting at flyweight. All this garbage, and I and I asked about the. I asked both him and Demetrius Johnson on the conference call last week. You guys can go listen to it right now on the on the 411 Mania site. I asked about the weight issue, and they basically brushed it off. Demetrius Johnson, oh, he's a professional. I'm not concerned about that. Um, Ray Borg's like, oh, I'm only 24 years old, and now I'm finally doing it the right way. Well, no, you didn't do it the right way, and you can, yes. He got sick, he has a virus, and that happened because he was weight, because he was cutting weight, and he was probably not doing it the right way. And now he's fired his nutritionist and his nutrition team, uh, the people who came out and said that his illness was not weight-related. He just fired them uh, on Friday. So what does that tell you? He was not, he was clearly not doing it the right way, or he wasn't, or he shouldn't even be fighting at flyweight. Okay? I said from the beginning this was the wrong fight to make. I said the UFC, what they should have done 
is they should have held off on, on booking Demetrius Johnson and booked him against probably the winning, winner of Sergio Pettis uh, versus Brandon Moreno. So now we have a situation where Demetrius Johnson, who the whole point of this was he was possibly going to break the all-time title defense record. He lost that opportunity last night. So now all that's dead. We don't even know if he'll be able to fight, uh, if they'll reschedule this fight and he'll be able to fight again in October. I didn't like the Dillashaw fight, and I wrote about that too. I said the Dillashaw fight was dumb and it was a bad idea because it messes up two divisions and you break away from uh, the Garbrandt-Dillashaw matchup, which is a matchup you should keep. But I had the right scenario, and it should have been Johnson versus the winner of Moreno versus Pettis because, look, Pettis, at least he, he, his wins, maybe, maybe they aren't spectacular, but he's on a four-fight winning streak right now, and we know he can make weight, and he's reliable at making weight, and he's got a better record at flyweight than freaking Ray Borg. At least, you know, one silver lining out of this is Henry Cejudo, at least he looked great last night. Um, and maybe he can fight Pettis, but, I mean, that matchup fell apart before. But if you're trying to turn around Johnson quick, forget about Ray Borg. He's a schmuck. Book Johnson against Sergio Pettis. That's your title fight. If look, if look, if the idea is just to give Johnson his eleventh title defense, and you really don't care who because you booked him against Ray Borg in the first place, then what is wrong with Sergio Pettis? Uh, I think the only hurdle there is Pettis and his team actually don't want that fight right now. So, may, who, Robert? Fighters say all sorts of crap all the time and they go back on it, okay? At least make them, make them an offer. So what? Yeah, I mean, for me, in the wake of this, the ideal scenario is uh, Johnson versus Pettis and then Borg versus Cejudo. You had, the whole, Cejudo- panel, you had the whole panel on um, the MMA beat. They were talking up this fight and defending this fight because, oh, just give Johnson his 11th title defense. Oh, Ray Borg, he's doing it the right way now. He's doing his new... Well, you can't rely on that crap because the guy's already missed weight twice. And no one wanted to acknowledge that before this fight. And now... I like, I now like that everybody... Disaster. In, in addition to that, Jeff, I like that everybody on this panel is all oh, Ray Borg's doing it the right way. He's cutting weight responsibly. He's going to be... Were any of them actually in the camp? Were they, were, were they there when Ray Borg was hitting the scales every day? No, they weren't there. So, Hal, what are you doing? You're taking it at the word, oh, yeah, I feel good. I'm cutting weight right. From a guy who's said this in the past and screwed up twice. Right. They wanted the, the – everyone thinks Johnson should get handed this 11th title defense. And I love Johnson, and I think he's the guy to do it. I've, I've been saying it for a while, and I think if anyone can do it, it's him. But it's still fighting. And anything can happen in a fight. And just because you think Johnson should, like, get, like, a, you know, a victory lap through the, through, through the breaking the record, and, and you think Ray Borg is the easy mark, I mean, I think that's kind of what was the mindset here, is you want to give – you basically want to give Johnson a tune-up title defense. And it, Ray Borg was never that guy. His record no, is not is- that good. His no, not and the thing is, that's that's the problem in flyweight right now. Is most guys really don't have shiny, nice records, and on top of that, 
they're in the quandary of how do we make an appealing fight with Demetrius Johnson when, A, he's already beaten the elite-level guys at flyweight, and, B, has anyone really been so impressive and looked so good and so consistent that they're really an appealing opponent? That's why they wanted to make the Dillashaw fight. But I think if you made the Dillashaw fight, there were too many – You're hurting two divisions. Right. It messes up what's yeah. going on with Dillashaw and Garbrandt. I don't want to. I don't want to lose that fight. I'm sorry. It makes no and sense. In reality, part- in reality, that fight is a bigger draw than TJ against Mighty Mouse, and you don't want to miss out on that. Right. If you're the right. UFC. So, but look, they booked this fight with Borg, and if if it's a matter of just booking Johnson in his 11th fight, what 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 is wrong with the idea of just waiting and putting him against someone like a Pettis or Moreno anyway? Now, you know, I mean, and, and, this goes, and this goes back to a point, um, now. one of the weeks when you weren't able to join us, Jeff, um, Robert and I talked about how because of the money invested in Connor versus Floyd and that whole deal and the proximity of it to this pay-per-view, that they were basically kind of giving up on this pay-per-view, which is why Demetrius was even in, you know, the whole mix of a pay-per-view as opposed to a TV fight, which is what we've been used to seeing him on especially in a headlining role, which this would have been a co-headlining role once they moved the women's fight to this pay-per-view. And on paper, it was a really good card to start with. But did you have any high names in there that draw you, you know, huge pay-per-view buys? No. And why? Because the UFC didn't want a chance, you know, losing those buys at a later date after people had already spent $100 on the Conor Floyd fight. They knew that was the reality of it. So they put Mighty Mouse on this. They rushed the fight. They booked it against somebody who they could throw in there for any number of reasons as opposed to a more key opponent that maybe actually will draw some interest and a strong rating on, say, Fox or something else. And this is the mess that happens when you do that. Well, they lost Nganu JDS because, you know, you know, Reuters Which are going to roll. Even, even then – even then, that was a good fight, but that wasn't your headliner, and it was more a case of we have to just put something on here to get one of these guys featured to build them for that next step, whether it's JDS getting back to the heavyweight title or in all yeah, likelihood no. Gano taking that next step in his career. Yeah, much more likely. Yeah. Um, I, I think it, when they first announced UFC 215, they were trying to have it booked in Seattle, and I think that's why Demetrius wanted on the card. He lives in the area, and he wanted to be on a you know on a big card in essentially his hometown, which is a big draw for a lot of guys. There's a lot of pride that goes into that, and it wouldn't shock me if he had signed a bout agreement for UFC 216, and then the UFC wound up moving it from because they moved it from Seattle to uh, Edmonton. And then they, he was just stuck on the card, kind of regardless of actual location of fight. But they're trying to potentially do a quick turnaround for UFC 216 for that fight. Uh, I have no idea whether or not that'll actually pan no. out. No. No. How? What? I mean, Ray Borg is a he's a he's a mess. He's a he probably can't even make weight. Why would you try to do it again? Again, this is just, that's just what I what the a lot of the talking points were. So, again, I would rather they just had him and Pettis and then Cejudo and Borg. And if Borg can make 125, bear in mind not 126. If he actually makes 125 and beats Henry Cejudo, I think we could 
potentially re-enter him into the title conversation at that point. Or, but I, or even then, if you want to book a fight for Demetrius, let him fight somebody at 130 pounds non-title because he just put in a full camp, is ready to fight. Get him on a card at 130 pounds just to give him a keep busy fight. You know, and even if he loses above the weight, he doesn't really lose anything because it's an above the weight fight. And then book him in a title fight against, you know, Sergio Pettis down the line. Yeah, there's a lot of ways this could be handled going forward. Uh, I was really bummed because I, I love watching Demetrius Johnson fight. I make no bones about it. So losing that, it sucked. Um, the fact that the main card was sour ending aside, and that is what we're going to talk about next here. If we set aside the actual ending to the main event, and I, I have thoughts, I know you guys do, the rest of the main card was pretty good. Uh, th- this was a solid, solid card, all things considered. So, again, we lose the main event. Uh, Dana White has made a liar once again because <laughs> guess who main evented a pay-per-view? Amanda Nunes. Um in the main event, Amanda Nunes defeats Valentina Shevchenko via split decision. I'm, but her I, I nose say, was rose. The nose was rose, Robert. The nose was rose. Yeah. Um, all right, let's, let's get this. Uh, there's two things I want to say here. One, I scored the fight four rounds to one for Valentina Shevchenko. I'll be upfront about that. If you are of the opinion that Amanda Nunes won the fifth and I am being unfair to her with that score, that's okay. I'm not going to argue with you over the fifth round a whole lot. It can be, No, that's it, what I'll I, do. <laughs> easy. Um, if you, there needs to be a larger discussion had at some point about the value of takedowns that lead to nothing especially when there's other action to judge in a round, as there was in this case. But if you're of the opinion that, uh, you know, Nunes getting kind of the ride position for about 30 seconds or that takedown with like 10 seconds left in the round, if that swayed you and, uh, I'm, again, I, that's not the biggest gripe I have with this. If you think, you know, Nunes won rounds one and five, okay. I can see your perspective. I gave her the first. And if you think she's, she stole the fifth with, you know, fighting literally to steal rounds. Okay. You know, other fighters have done that in the past. I'm not trying to bag on Nunes here, but if, if you believe that fine, I'm not going to yell at you. The issue becomes, and I think the swing round that from what I've seen is round three. And I just, I, I can't, in good conscience, give that to Amanda Nunes. If you, if Amanda Nunes edges out the third round, it's the mythical aggression clause. Which, which we've come I, to refer to as the Diego Sanchez, Leonard Garcia clause. Yeah, yeah, the Garcia Sanchez precedent. It's, and I, I've said my piece about that in the past. I'm not going to raise my blood pressure and rant about it. But, I mean, that, that's the only thing that you have to argue her winning the third round on, my opinion, from what I saw. That being said, then this is, again, I'm, I'm four to one, three to two at a minimum, all for Shevchenko. I don't think this was a robbery. Let me be very clear about this, because this was not the worst decision I've ever seen. This was not the worst decision I've seen this month. 
This was three to two for Amanda Nunes was not even the worst scorecard on this event because somebody gave Gavin Tucker that first round in his fight with Mm. with uh, Rick Glenn, which I think is infinitely more indefensible than round three for Nunes. Much as I think this is the wrong outcome, and I, I regret referencing Clucky because at the end I, I did, and I, I regret that not because I dislike using Clucky every now and then, but because I think it gave the impression that I thought this was just an absolutely horrendous decision. While I believe it to be wrong, I do not believe it to be so out, to be completely outside the bounds of a, what we can reasonably expect given the state of judging, and B, even... Media Row not... was, like, split in half, basically, on the decision yeah. as well. And they yeah, were, this like, was... the people who were there live. Yeah, this, was not a, this is split. not a monument to ineptitude, like, you know, Sanchez versus um, Pearson or Garcia versus Fan, uh, Nam Fan. This is not one of those. I think they got it wrong, but this isn't – I'm not going to stand on this hill and die because I know with every fiber of my being that this was just the absolutely worst – this was the absolute worst decision possible. I, I don't think it went that far. As for the action itself, um, I, need to, I need to talk a little bit about this because there's two things that Amanda Nunes did that – One of them, I'm trying to phrase this carefully because I don't want it to sound like a backhanded compliment. I really don't. Nunez clearly worked on her conditioning a lot. And more importantly than that, she was able to insist that the fight be fought at a... she was able to have a longer gas tank because she had very little output. Yes. There was barely any activity from her. That's kind of what I'm getting at here. Ahead, I would Pat. say I, I'll agree with that point, but also going back to the first fight, the first fight, especially the first round from her, wasn't exactly a beehive of activity either. But it was more the it was more the second she was round. Starting to get tired in the last round, she was she starting was. to slow down, and Valentina did not still didn't really look all that tired. But that's where my criticism of Valentina's performance came in. Is even though I made. Like, I almost thought the second round was 10-10, but I think the problem here is the, is the judging doesn't want to score draws or 10-10 rounds. But even if the fight was, like, a draw, Nunez still, still would have retained the belt, and I don't really take issue with the decision. I think Valentina is equally at fault for the way the scorecards went. I'm sorry. I disagree with that entirely. Hang on, hang on. You know? That's okay. It's okay that you can. We we don't that, have to agree on everything, Pat. Yeah. We have no, reasonable disagreements all the time. Hang yeah, on, let me I don't, I'm not saying point. you're wrong. It's just I disagree with that point. That's fair. Hang on, let me finish mine, and then I'll give you your say, Pat. And again, the thing I wanted to talk about with Nunes was, A, she had worked on her gas tank, and B, and again, this is one one thing I really don't want to sound like a backhanded compliment. She was able to make sure that the fight was contested at a pace that allowed her maintain a gas tank uh, to maintain her conditioning through five rounds. There's a lot of fighters, and this has been talked about in the past here, there's a lot of fighters that if they are able to fight within their discipline, be that wrestling, be that striking, you know, whatever it is, they can fight all day. 
you force them out of that and they their gas tank suffers immensely. And there's a surprising number of fighters who insist on randomly trying that. There's a surprising number of wrestlers that will suddenly decide I'm going to take this round and I'm going to engage in a high output brawl. There's a surprising number of strikers who go, well, they're against the fence. Let me try and get a takedown. This usually goes badly. Nunez worked hard on her conditioning and then fought at a pace and in a style that allowed her to maximize those gains. And she needs, and again, she needs to be commended for that because there's a lot of fighters who don't really deal with either of those issues. I don't think there was anything commendable about that performance. I'm sorry. That's fair as well. Um, Again, the only thing I'll say about the action, what there was, I found this fight interesting, not good, bear in mind, but interesting because I was watching what each woman was trying to do. And they did a lot of canceling each other out. But to me, the most impressive thing was, and bear in mind, that, that might be a low bar in this fight. So when I, again, when I say impressive, it's relative to the rest of this fight and what, what happened. Shevchenko did, was constantly, especially once we get into rounds like three and four, did this really interesting thing where she was baiting Nunes into coming forward, but Nunes wasn't going to go first because she didn't want to get countered, which is fair. So rather than just wait, although she did a fair amount of that too, mind you, Shevchenko would throw a safe combination, a Superman punch into an outside leg kick, which is a very safe combination. And even if it didn't land, and frequently it didn't, Nunez would, if she avoided it, plant and look to counter. Shevchenko, knowing that Nunez is going to plant and counter, was ready to duck the predictable right and then land a counter combination of her own. It was a really nice read. Uh, that Shevchenko had made. Um, again, beyond my disagreeing with the decision, uh, and you know, I said my piece on that. That's the only real technical thing I kind of wanted to take away from this fight was the way Shevchenko would bait Nunez into trying to counter her and then getting countered because of that. Um, which was then again, I found very interesting. I found more interesting things about this fight than I did about uh, Woodley Maya. Which was ugh, let us never let's just not talk about that too much. Don't uh, ever reference that fight again. I'll reference it again at various points because I I believe it is the worst title fight in UFC history, if not all major MMA promotional history. For I'd put it values. on par with uh, Woodley Thompson too. That that honestly surpassed Sylvia Arlovsky for me. <laughs> that's fair. Uh, anyway, that's my that was like my benchmark point. for terrible. Anyway, that's my two cents on the whole thing. Um, I'll rant about... Uh, Okay, the last thing I want to say about this. Uh, Tyron Woodley on the analyst desk. Normally, he's he's acceptable in that role. He's an intelligent guy. He's well-spoken. He fits what they kind of want there. I dislike the general policy of putting a fighter on the analyst desk if they're if there is a featured and prominent bout taking place in their weight class. But because by definition, when that comes up, they're going to serve their own interests and it's unfair and unrealistic to expect them to do otherwise. So again, like, I mean, the example for Woodley after the Lawler Condit fight, when the question was brought up, okay, this is a controversial decision. Another one decision I disagreed with. 
Should there be an immediate rematch? And Tyron Woodley, who is by default at this point next in line for a title shot, what do you, what do you think he's going to say? Of course he's going to say, no, no immediate rematch. I want my title shot. Of course he is. He should say that in point of fact. You're putting him in an untenable situation where he must try to be objective for the sake of being an analyst, but also recognize and support his interests as a fighter. It's just not a tightrope that can be legitimately walked, I think. So I accept. I, I accept the analysts those... are never objective, Robert. I know, and that's a whole other kettle of fish. Uh, that's a whole other thing. But in that's this instance, why Kenny Florian. That's why Kenny Florian publicly proclaimed that Daniel Cormier was going to beat John Jones, and same thing for Michael Bisbing. And then Michael Bisbing's on Believe You Me a little a couple days later. I, I knew John Jones was going to win, but I had to pick Daniel. Because Daniel's my friend, and we work together at Fox Sports. Uh, again, I understand, I, I understand the, that there is no such thing as a truly unbiased perspective. And in many ways, there's a good, there's a, that's a good thing in a lot of respects. What bothered me about Tyron Woodley on the desk last night, and what has started bothering me about a lot of his analyst desk appearances, <sighs> he has... He has a very, very flagrant pro-champion bias, and it's really started to rub me personally the wrong way. I don't know if anyone else is – I don't know if – I might be He's alone. the worst might, UFC welterweight champion of all time. It bothers everybody. No, he's not Carlos Newton. He's worse than Carlos Newton. He's not worse than uh, – again, I'm, I'm not a fan of Woodley, but he is better than Carlos Newton. I mean, in some respects, he's better than Pat Militich, too. Yeah. I mean, he's less entertaining than those guys, but he is a world's better fighter. So, I don't know. That's, that's a whole other debate. But when, like, when talking about a potential rematch between Nunes and Shevchenko, because, well, the decision was, again, controversial, to say the least, his response was, no, if Shevchenko had won, sure, because the champion should get an immediate rematch on a close decision. But... Uh, other than that, no. And again, it, th- I apologize for the over edit for overly editorializing about that, but there's elements of his personal perspective that he has just started foisting. I believe too much when he's on that particular platform, and it's really started to bother me. So that's the last thing I wanted to say there. Uh, Jeff, I'll start with you again. I know you're kind of on some short time here. Uh, your, you know, your two cents on the main event, be that action scoring, whatever you want to say. I thought Valentino was the more active and creative fighter, but those rounds, there's, there was just so, there wasn't a lot happening in, in each round. I thought second round easily could have been a 10, 10 round. I think the first round was Amanda's. Uh, I think I gave the second and third to Valentina and I would I, I I think she took the fifth too, but then look that takedown kind of it messes up the perception of judges a lot. And I don't re- she didn't really do anything with her takedown, and they were just kind of laying there on the ground uh, most of the time. I think Valentina deserves credit because most of her takedown defense did hold up whenever you know they sort of had those grappling or scrambling exchanges and 
I guess, do you think what happens with that takedown overrides what happened in the rest of the round and effectively gives Amanda the round? And to me, it's, it's a problem with the scoring as well because, to me, it doesn't work that you have marginal 10-9s and really dominant 10-9s. To me, that's a huge flaw with this scoring system. And at the same time, I think, I think Valentina – there weren't a lot of major, like, really big moments in this fight, but I felt like the biggest the, – the shots with the most impact that were the most effective were really Valentina's. But Amanda, Amanda did – I mean, look, she, she didn't really gas out most of the fight, even though it looked like she was really starting to slow down at the end which is, I think, why she started initiating those grappling exchanges and trying more actively to take Valentina to the ground. And she only got her to the ground because of a mistake Valentina made when she went for, for that throw. Um, and, and her timing was off. I was, and I just... You brought, hang on, just yeah? very briefly. I was so happy we were about to get a complete start-to-finish women's MMA bout without that stupid head and arm throw. We were so close. Right. I was. Yeah. I was so happy. <laughs> she nope. shouldn't have gone. For, that was. I mean, she probably shouldn't have gone for that head and arm throw that late into the fifth round. No, uh, that was a huge mistake. That unfortunately, because judges are blind, ended up costing her the fight. And the problem is, you can get away with that. the fight. Yeah, you can get away with that on certain girls. Yeah, that's that, that's where they ended up Does with it. Is that fifth round? Round two could have maybe been a 10-10, or am I insane? I think three I've was more likely. A... <laughs> if I may, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll let you go. Yeah, go ahead. That. I thought round yeah. three was more a 10-10 material than round two, but that may have just been my perspective. But there were certainly I've rounds seen... that could have been draws. I've seen more rounds scored evenly than that. I don't. I, I personally thought Valentina – had the edge just based on, I thought she landed cleaner strikes and tended to create the uh, opportunities for striking more, but I've seen worse rounds scored 10, 10. Um, anyway, I, I didn't really like the fight. I was, I mean, I guess I'm disappointed that Valentina didn't get the decision and maybe that's coloring my opinion, but I just feel like, I don't know. I ex- I expected a little bit more out of out of Amanda, and I I understand what she was doing, but I don't really want to credit her that much for going to five rounds when she didn't really have that much activity at all. At the same time, you know, we see judges score this fight. Um, maybe they don't know how to score a fight accurately, but when you have close fights like this. More not all the time, but more often than not, it tends to go to the champion. And if it was a draw, Nunez still would have kept the title. And to me, the fight easily could have been scored a draw as well. So that's not really what I'm upset about. I'm just kind of upset that the fight kind of stunk. And I don't know. I think Valentina still could have done. She could have been a little more active in spots and tried to. I don't know. I felt. I I don't know. I I I get the fight stunk either. I I liked it. Yeah. I'm just, I think I, the crowd I, I is booing because the, the crowd doesn't have an understanding of technical fighting, and they wanted to see more rock'em, sock'em, robot-type stuff. But I, I like the fight. I like the strategies involved. 
I liked, and the biggest takeaway for me that I enjoyed was what Rob pointed out about uh, Shevchenko is that we see so many people who are so intent to counter-strike, but when their opponent isn't engaging, they just sit there and wait for an opportunity. And rather than do that, Valentina had a plan to throw a specific combination that she would be able to defend against if it didn't land and be in position to strike once the counter was coming. And for Amanda, everybody knows her biggest weapon is her big right hand, which one thing that strikes out is that she's become very reliant on that and not necessarily coming with anything after it. So when she did land it the few times that she did and Valentina was able to take it and not have that same, you know, reaction as uh, Holly or, or excuse me, not Holly, but the same reaction as Ronda or Misha where they were immediately hurt by the punch and didn't know how to react. And Valentina took it, took it well and didn't stagger. And when more often than not it was thrown, she did counter it or get underneath it. Amanda seemed lost and didn't want to engage because when she did get countered, it bothered her. And that's not something she's used to. So I thought Shevchenko fought a really brilliant strategic fight on that end. She made one crucial mistake in a bad spot but even in that fifth round, I don't think Amanda, there's any case for Amanda yeah, winning it because I, I while she secured good, top Kat. position, she didn't do anything with it. I can't feel good about this result where I, I would agree with you that I thought Valentina was way more strategic and creative through this whole fight. But, you know, she still lost. Technically, to the judges, she lost. And I don't know. It just puts a bad taste in my mouth. No, I'm not. I'm uh, not trying to say that I, I don't. I feel that. good about that part of it. I, I agree with that entirely. It's just I. I was entertained by the fight and what went on. I know a lot of people weren't. Uh, again, personally, I was. I found it interesting, but I did not find it all that uh, too terribly entertaining. And um, uh, the cr- uh, I don't know how to feel about the crowd because for a lot of the event, they were good. Maybe this one just went too long and they'd ingested too much beer by the time the main event came around. But, uh, yeah, so anyway, we're moving on. Uh, Other division is Amanda Nunes is going to have, I think she's going to have surgery to try and fix her sinusitis, uh, which if she does get that fixed, you know, first of all, good for her because that, again, that's a miserable condition. Uh, I don't know who would be next. Because the division's in a really weird spot. Um, yeah. There was a degree. Who is it, Raquel Pennington, maybe? Maybe. I mean, you're probably not going to do Holly because she only just broke a three fight losing streak and she beat Betch Cohea, of all people. And bear in mind, Cohea might be like the worst UFC title challenger. Uh, She's to up date. there. Uh, so I don't think you can go with her, even though there's elements of Co- of Nunes versus Holm that are stylistically intriguing. You do still have to be able to sell this thing. Um, and the rest of the top of that division, she's either beaten or they're just not in a place to potentially challenge. I mean, there's there's no other there's no other like buzz around a potential challenger. There was some buzz around this fight just because of how good Valentina is and some of the questions around Nunes. Now that we've had that and we had we got both the fight that we did and the outcome that we did, there's a pretty serious lack of uh, you know upward mobility for a lot of fighters in that division. So hopefully something is going to change while Nunes is you know getting that getting her issues fixed surgically uh, because about, otherwise uh, Ketlin, uh, Vieja. she sure, looked I mean... good beating Sarah McMahon, but 
she's undefeated I, at least. She's undefeated, and yeah, if, she, I think... if she takes another fight and wins that, then maybe you could. And like if she fights and beats, you know, since we brought her up, Raquel Pennington as an example, I think you could maybe then sell her as a title challenger, but she still needs at least one more win. Yeah, I think Pennington is the kind of probably most likely the next in line. She's on a four-fight win streak, and the last one was Misha Tate's last fight, who she beat pretty thoroughly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Misha was already yeah, who had already Misha had already checked out of that of the sport by the time that fight rolled around. Um, all right. Anyway, that was the main event. Um, again, if you're a fan of like dissecting specific techniques, there's some interesting stuff. But other than that, it's a, it's a skippable fight. Uh, co-main event. Um, Wolf. Rafael dos Anjos <laughs> done run over Neil Magny. Um, RDA submits him in the first round with an arm triangle choke. This wasn't quite as I I need to double check something before I say this uh, regarding Neil Magny. Okay, no, no. Think about this for just a second. RDA did better against Neil Magny than Damian Maya did. Maya beat him, I think, 10-8 in the first and then submitted him in the second. Um, RDA just ran him over. Uh, he landed a hard leg kick that took Magny's feet out from under him. It was also well-timed. And once this thing hit the mat, um, RDA just smashed past, was able to land on him, pass his guard, pass to side control, pass to mount. Magny spent a lot of time on one hip to avoid being completely flattened, which is good in theory. But the level of grappling from Dos Anjos was just so much better than Magny's that him being on a hip like that and trying to block his face opened up the arm triangle. RDA locked it up uh, and killed Neil Magny's title aspirations for the next, like, two years. Um, Robert, do you have the message I sent you at 11.41 p.m. just before that fight started? I believe you said RDA is about to kill Neil Magny. Uh, Pretty much. It says RDA about to kill Magny. Yeah, um, I picked RDA last week, but I didn't think it would be this. I didn't think it would go like this. I thought he would win. I did not expect him to put a thorough domination on a legitimate top 10 welterweight in Neil Magny. Magny's strides that he has made as a fighter over the last two years, from like 2015 into this year, and 14 before that if you want to go in the Wayback Machine, he made legitimate strides. He's he's been very consistent. He's beaten some talented guys. And RDA blew through him like he wasn't even there tonight, uh, last night. That was that was something else from RDA. Um he looks really good at welterweight. I was I I I even thought he would win and I didn't think it would go quite like that. Um Yeah, Pat, I'll start with you here since uh I gave Jeff for saying the last couple. What did you think about this? I mean, RDA looks like a, he looks darn good at welterweight. I mean, he beat uh, Tarek Safadine, which isn't easy. And here he just looks like he finally figured out the divi- uh, you know, him fighting in the division and ran over, a le- again, a legitimate top 10 in the world welterweight. I think the, the last two fights he had at lightweight, it was very visible that he was struggling. His strength wasn't there for a guy who was known as a very, you know, tough guy to deal with in the clinch and close quarters and grappling because of how physically strong he was. 
He had done a, a really excellent job of complementing his high-level grappling with some really good striking and movement to really equip himself as a complete fighter. But when he had to really make that weight cut and it was getting harder and harder based on what he was doing, it really just took everything away from him. And I think Eddie Alvarez caught him at the right time if you were going to catch him. And Tony Ferguson, not to take anything away, I don't know that that fight goes any differently if RDA makes the weight healthy. But I definitely think he fought a lesser version of RDA than what we were expecting. And since he's come up to 170, all those strides he's made it, he made at lightweight are there but he's doing it at a weight where he feels comfortable. He's not killing himself. He's healthy. His stamina is much better, and he looks stronger as the fight goes on because he's not having that suicide weight cut. And he fought a guy here who I felt like he was going to run over just based on the styles, and he did. All right, Jeff, uh, what did you think about this one? Because, I mean, again, you and I talked about this last week, and I don't think either of us predicted it would be this lopsided. I mean, either way. I think you went with Magni, right? Um, I think Hoffield, we got a new contender at welterweight right now. And Hoffield Desanyas is well on his way. Magni was ranked uh, number six going into this fight. I'm not saying he has to fight for the title uh, for his next fight, but he'd definitely be a fresh contender for the division. Um, I don't know if, if he could force Woodley into a fight as he claims he does. Um, but, uh, I would definitely like to see if he could. Yeah, I, I agree that he probably needs one more and there's some really interesting fights for him at welterweight. Uh, I saw people float both, um, Jorge Masvidal and Robbie Lawler and all of those just make me happy as a fan of violence because, uh, any of those would be, uh, fantastic matchups or you know again if he does fight for the belt next because welterweight is in kind of a weird spot i would love to see him fight tyron woodley i because i i tend to agree that he would make woodley fight he's that that's mm-hmm. the kind of fighter that rda is uh, i don't know if he'd beat tyron woodley but again i'd be interested uh he's he sold me as on him at welterweight with this one all right, next up, uh, man, oh, man. Henry Cejudo defeats Wilson Hayes via TKO in the second round, and this wasn't even close. Um, I don't know what Henry Cejudo had been doing. I, I know he did some training with uh, Leoto Machida and the Pitbull brothers uh, down in Brazil, actually. Uh, Henry, this was the best performance of Henry Cejudo's entire career. He just completely shut down Wilson Hayes. And I also think this needs to be said. A lot of what he was doing was what Demetrius Johnson did. He just applied more prep, more, he's a more powerful puncher than Demetrius is. And he had a slightly different, um, he's more willing to like get into firefights. That's kind of the fighter Henry is versus DJ. But a lot of what he was doing was the same kind of setups and movement that DJ used in terms of, you know, where his foot position is, landing the straight right, avoiding any potential counters. Cejudo just, again, packs more firepower and had a slightly different implementation of the same basic strategy. And he looked phenomenal. Again, he just, blew, he just ran over Wilson Hayes. Um, this was a great performance from Henry Cejudo. Uh I still don't think he'd beat Demetrius, but the strides he made from even his last fight when he, again, I thought 
I thought he won two rounds against Joseph Benavides, but then there was the point deduction that, you know, screwed things up. Uh, even that, and again, I, not too many people even take a couple of rounds from Joseph Benavides. The strides he made from that fight to this fight were noticeable and were significant. If he keeps going, um, man, there's a very high ceiling for Henry Cejudo, and we finally got to see a lot more of his capabilities uh, in the UFC, like a million bucks. Uh, Jeff, I'll go to you on this one. Um, Man, where was this guy hiding? (laughs) Well, uh, if you believe what he has to say, he's getting better and he's only improving. He's only been in MMA for like three years, but man, that is without a doubt the best performance uh, of his UFC career, maybe even his MMA career as a whole. But um, man, his boxing looked sharp last night and um, he let his hands go and uh I don't know where I don't know where this Cejudo is behiding, but uh, I hope he I hope he doesn't play hide and seek again. Uh, Pat, uh, yeah, again, you you look at a lot of the technical stuff. So me saying that he kind of took what DJ did and adapted it and amped it up based on the way he fights. Am I way off base there? And what do you think of Cejudo in general in this fight? No, I really liked what I saw from him in terms of he was more adept at seeing the openings as they developed and striking out at them and not necessarily doing the same old things over and over again that we've seen from him in fights. You know, his wrestling is on a great, great level. And the only thing he's really needed to do to complement that is get a striking game together. He showed a lot of promise in this. And like we said, he saw the openings develop. And as soon as they did develop, he went at them with what was there for him to take. He had a better understanding of what strikes to throw at what openings, as opposed to uh, a guy who, you know, typically we see from wrestlers, they want to throw a big overhand right as soon as they think it's there because they think it's their best punch. Whereas what I saw from him here is he had the opening for a nice short straight right hand, and that's what he threw. And I'm very impressed by that. I think training with the Mashita camp paid off. Um, and I think that's something that a lot of guys would benefit from is just taking the time to learn proper ways to get into these openings and fight them. And that's what we saw from him. And if he can keep this up for another two, three fights develop like that, he'll be ready for Demetrius Johnson and he'll stand a pretty good chance of beating him. Yeah. Uh, all right. Next up, um, Ilir Latifi defeats Tyson Pedro. This was the only yeah. fight I pre- this was the only fight I picked wrong on the main card. I speculated hard on Pedro. Uh, unanimous decision, 229-28s and the 30-27. Um, there's some good in Tyson Pedro's game. He's a good kicker, especially for a man of his size. He's got good. He's got decent hands, you know, decent power. But this was just a bridge too far for him at this juncture. Uh, to face a guy with the style and, you know, Alir Latifi and I, he's never going to be, you know, champion. He's never really going to be a top five in the world guy, but he doesn't lose to just anybody. And he's a real stern test for anybody trying to make the jump from, you know, fighting in the shallow end of the pool where Pedro had been fighting to let's see how you can actually do against ranked guys. And, 
you know, Latifi turned him back, turned him back pretty convincingly. And, you know, just got another win after a layoff once, you know, after Ryan Bader took his head off. So, you know, good stuff for Latifi, who is in, he's going to, there's a good chance he becomes the Ryan Bader of the UFC now that Ryan Bader's not actively holding him back by being a better fighter. Um, Pat, uh, again, you, uh, sorry, Jeff, last week you mentioned, you know, you were going with Latifi. I was the one speculating on a prospect. Uh, what did you think about the fight? Uh, I mean, I didn't like the fight, but I thought it was a good test for Tyson Pedro. Nonetheless, I'm of the belief that sometimes fighters need to lose because it's through a loss that you will see what a fighter is truly made of. And if they can learn from that loss and become even better than before, or if, you know, they can't get over it, or it's kind of like a sink or swim situation. I think Cejudo is, I think he has a lot of potential. I just thought Latifi was going to give him a lot of problems, and that's kind of what happened. It was, it was sort of a, a workmanlike performance, kind of a, a bit of a boring fight, but I wasn't, re- I mean, I didn't really hate it, and I wasn't really surprised by what I saw either. Latifi is a pretty underrated fighter, even even with his losses in the UFC. All right, Pat, you mentioned uh, when you and I were kind of talking about this that you picked Latifi just because you didn't know who Tyson Pedro was. Uh, any thoughts on the fight itself? No, we just kind of there. Um, 205 is a wasteland. This is one of the sadly better guys at 205, and that says everything about the division. All right, and kicking off the main card. Fight, I think we were all looking forward to because you put these two together on paper and it's a good fight and we got a much more one-sided fight than we expected, but still an action fight. Jeremy Stevens defeats Gilbert Melendez via unanimous decision. 30-26, 30-26, and 30-25. For the record, I was 30-25. I gave Jeremy Stevens a 10-8 first and a 10-8 third. Um... Jeremy Stevens landed uh, – there's two things that interested me about this fight technically in addition to just kind of the general action. One was, uh, first of all, Jeremy Stevens – a lot of people talk about his punching power, and I did too for a long time until I read some something Jack Slack was, had said about him that made me rethink my position, not in totality but in part <laughs> – uh, he just meant, I mean, Jeremy Stevens has 26 UFC fights. This was his 26th fight in the UFC. A, that's kind of insane, considering he fought at, you know, lightweight and now featherweight for the majority of that. Uh, that kind of longevity is impressive. But he really doesn't have a significant number of TKO finishes, A, in general, and B, with punches. His kicking game, however, is really good. He landed one or two uh, calf kicks onto Gilbert Melendez that uh, they screwed up Gil's leg badly. Uh, That thing was swelling. There was speculation that he might have broken a shin, you know, might have broken his leg. It was it was nasty. He landed those, and Melendez dropped like three times in the first round from them. That was a very effective weapon. 
Um, the other thing Jeremy Stevens had in this fight that needs to be acknowledged was he had a very high output. His punch count was very high. And he's not normally – this is weird considering if you, you know, if you watch a lot of Jeremy Stevens fights, he tends to throw a lot. But even for him, he kept a very consistent high output of offense. And some of that's just, you know, the style of fighter that Gilbert Melendez is. Uh, but it, it was impressive for him to have that output. He varied his offense to the head and body uh, and, you know, outworked Melendez in addition to just, you know, having a better game plan. The one thing that Gilbert Melendez did that I think – I, that I want to talk about here in terms of the adjustments he made after his left leg was basically crippled to protect it. He switched to Southpaw. And as he did, so the other thing he started doing was a lot of forward motion because it's hard to really kick a guy. If you're backing up and they're coming forward, not impossible, but much more difficult. And it bothered Jeremy Stevens, not uh, not to the point where he was rendered ineffective, but he had to make adjustments himself, and it took him a while to do so. Uh, the big problem with Melendez was going southpaw and going forward was step one of a multi-step process to potentially re-enter himself as a legitimate participant in this fight. I applaud his ability to take even the first step, because a lot of guys don't. But he never tried the second step. He never tried changing his angle. He never tried fighting from southpaw. He never did anything other than protect a critically damaged appendage, which just let Jeremy Stevens keep beating him up. Uh, this was horribly once. This is, again, I picked Jeremy Stevens. I did not expect him to get two 10-8 rounds. This was horribly lopsided. I don't think Jeremy Stevens will probably ever even fight for the belt because the current champion beat him thoroughly. But he's made his career longevity deserves to be discussed, and the way he has improved himself as a fighter deserves to be discussed. This was, I think, this was his best performance in the UFC. Certainly, his most complete. I mean, he's had other spectacular finishes, but I don't think top to bottom he's ever looked as good as he did last night. And to be fair, there's also still issues with his game. But, uh, again, I think the best performance of his career top to bottom, for whatever that's worth. Uh, Jeff, what did you think about this? You you and I talked about it last week. You know, Melendez trying to reinvent himself down a weight class uh, just at his age. Seemed like a bad idea, and it was a very uh, bad idea. Getting off the roids clearly has um... – destroy Gilbert Melendez's career. He, you know, why do you make a drop down and wait and you try to reinvent yourself? You drop and wait because you want to be the bigger guy in your weight class and you expect to get some kind of advantage. Gilbert Melendez without steroids had absolutely no advantage at all last night. He got beat by, look, Jeremy Stevens, he's a decent fighter, a tough fighter, but he's a journeyman. He's been... He's been pretty much a journeyman throughout his entire UFC uh, career. Whenever he gets, like, a good win, like, he he loses his, ne- his next fight or he loses two or that kind of thing. Uh, that's always been the case for him. Melendez used to be one of the top uh, lightweight fighters in the world. Uh, that's not the case anymore. 
whether it was, whether or not it was steroids or whether or not you know he mentally checked out after he signed his last contract and you know got some big paydays, no. But um, I think it's seriously time for Gilbert Melendez to start considering the next phase of his professional career. Um, he probably has a decent analyst gig for for him at Fox Sports One. Uh, I think he's fine at that. But uh, if it's another instance of what happened at UFC 215, I do not think that's because that was that was a pretty abysmal beatdown. And Gilbert Melendez's fans were giving me a hard time saying you can't win a fight on one leg. Well, I mean. He got a one. He, he was fighting on one leg because his leg got kicked, and his bones looked thin and brittle after that weight cut. Um, it didn't help him at all. Gilbert Melendez. So either move back up to lightweight or retire. That's my advice. Uh, yeah. For the record, he was fighting on one leg because he comes from a camp that doesn't check leg kicks, and that particular affinity has bitten them in the ass more than once. Um, all right, Pat, what did you think about this? I, I didn't get your thoughts last week, but, I mean, Jeremy Stevens, again, he's a journeyman, like Jeff said, but, I mean, again, I thought he looked really good, and some of that was Gilbert Melendez just not looking good. <laughs> but some of that was what he was doing. So what did you think about this one? You know, it's funny because I think this is as absolutely the best performance of his career, but I think he's following what I would have said what was the best performance of his career two fights ago against Frankie Edgar? I think Frankie Edgar is the best guy he's ever fought, even though it's not the prime Frankie Edgar. Yeah, and there was an argument. He fought And Matt there Collins. was an argument. I think it's Go up ahead, for debate sorry. between the two based on track records, but it, nonetheless. That's fair. That's fair. I, I, think that, I think that, you know, there's a definite appeal that Jeremy is probably putting together his best stuff right now and you know the Moicano fight didn't think he lost that fight and he came out here with a point to prove and he did it I'm not going to say Gilbert Melendez lost because he's not on steroids or anything like that I think Gilbert Melendez lost because he fought a guy who was much better prepared in better shape and Gilbert himself has not evolved his game in a long time and there was a point in time where he didn't have to because he was one of the few guys who was capable of taking somebody down, defending takedowns well, and standing up and fighting on good terms. But as soon as other guys caught on to that, he wasn't so special anymore. And he went from being one of the three or four best lightweights in the world to being kind of an average lightweight. This was one of those last cries for relevance where a guy will cut weight and drop down to a division solely, as Jeff pointed out, to be the bigger man and enjoy what is perceived to be a size and strength advantage. And it mattered not at all here because, first of all, Jeremy Stevens is not a small featherweight. Jeremy Stevens has fought at lightweight very easily and had success there. So he wasn't taking on a bantamweight who had moved up. He was taking on a guy who's still in his size and strength range. And he's taking on a guy who's moved to a camp that has had him much better prepared to use what he does effectively and has started to be able to plug some of his defensive liabilities. He's certainly still got defensive liabilities, but he's doing much better at limiting them. This is his most complete performance. And while he's, a, he's, he's you know, had close to – I think he actually might be at 40 fights now for his career. 
he's still only 31 years old. He's still got three, maybe four years where he can put something together and make a real go of it. And if he's ever going to, this is the time. Uh, for the record, yes. Last night was his 40th professional fight. He is 26 and 14. Um, okay, I'm going to say something, and I'm going to hate myself for saying it, so nobody berate me for this. All right, please. That's all I'm asking. I feel compelled to say this. You know, for years, we speculated about a matchup in particular. The Strike Force lightweight champion Gilbert Melendez, who was on an incredible run, had some great fights with Josh Thompson, smoked um, Tatsuya Kawajiri, should have finished uh, Shinya Aoki, but the referee kind of botched that and then beat Aoki anyway because he didn't have his cheater pants. And again, one of the three or four best lightweights in the world. And on the other side of this particular equation, you had the undisputed UFC lightweight kingpin in BJ Penn. And how sad is it that in 2017, there's a non-trivial possibility that those two finally meet at featherweight. I'll prefer to think of how we also thought of a fight between the then reigning strike force champion, Gilbert Melendez and the then reigning Bellator lightweight champion, Eddie Alvarez. And we got that and it wound up being not a terrible fight. It was a lot of fun and probably didn't look a whole lot different than it would have when it was dreamed of happening. Let's let's look at the glass half full. Just saying. And it would be a very UFC thing to book that fight now again at featherweight. Just, just saying. And that's depressing as hell. All right, that Fox was the Sports main. Fox Sports needs main events too, Rob. I know they do, and uh, I wouldn't put those guys in the main event even if Fox Sports won. But that's just me. <laughs> All right. Uh, as for the prelims, I'm going to go very quickly here, um, and then I have something I have briefly, and then I know Pat wants to yell oh, about yeah. it. And I imagine Jeff might too. Um, Ketlin Vieja defeats Sarah McMahon via arm triangle choke in the second round. The weirdest arm triangle aware. ever. What? The weirdest arm triangle ever. I need to say that there's two things I want to say about this. One, I was not aware that McMahon, pulling a McMahon was a thing, that this was a phrase amongst the hardcore MMA community. Apparently it is. Um, here's the other thing. I need to give a thank you. I have, uh, let me say this. I have a decent amount of knowledge about various combat sports. None of it's truly, truly like profound or deep, but I have a good general base of knowledge. I also associate myself with people who have more knowledge than I do about various topics, some of them much more specific, and I'm more than happy to both lean on and learn from and learn from them. Uh, Pat's here. Pat knows more about box. Pat's forgotten more about boxing than I know or will ever know probably. So I don't mind leaning on him and learning from him in that respect. Andrew Graham, who's been on this show and I've talked about, uh, I've talked on other podcasts with and uh, just a friend of mine. Uh, he's a practice, he's a jujitsu practitioner. And whenever something weird happens on the ground that I can't make sense of, I'm very grateful that he is willing to take a bit of time out of his day to explain to me what happened and where the gaps are in my knowledge. He was very kind last night because. I looked at that and I said, this shouldn't work. So I actually messaged him and said, what the hell? Why don't I understand? Why did this work? Please enlighten me. And he did. 
Um, the important, and I'll paraphrase him here. Uh, the important thing about finishing an arm triangle choke is just your squeeze head and shoulder position. You want your body on the other side because it not only helps you finish, it really limits their defensive options. In the, in this case, Caitlin was able to get the choking position and because she couldn't move either her body or get her arms into the perfect position, she compensated by driving with, um, I think it was her right foot. She was able yeah. to get up on her toes and leverage her shoulder further into the blood choke, into the neck, to help complete the choke where, where you would use other parts of your body to finish it in an ideal scenario. Uh, and chiefly, you would mitigate this with a better half guard defensively than Sarah McMahon had. So... Again, just thank you to Andrew for enlightening me on that. And to all you, you know, jujitsu guys out there, this is something to maybe work on. You know, you don't need the ideal lower body position if you have a good enough squeeze and, you know, the guy on bot and you can finish the mechanics elsewise. So something to think about. Um, Sarah Morris defeats Ashley Evan Smith via armbar in the first round. This was a really sweet adjustment from Morris. She kind of had the arm bar, certainly had the Jujigatami roll position, but she couldn't finish it because of where the fence was. She readjusted. Ashley Evans-Smith bought on that motion. She rolled under, flipped her over, and dislocated her elbow. Um, really nice bottom game from Sarah Morris here. Rick, This is the one I'm coming back to. Rick Glenn defeats Gavin Tucker via unanimous decision with scores as follows. 30-25, 30-24, and 29-27. For the record, I was 30-24. Again, I'm going to circle back to this. Hang on. Alex White, Alex White defeated Mitch Clark via TKO in the second round. This was a really solid performance from White. Uh, just good recognition of openings, be that in the clinch or at distance. Uh, really hellacious series of elbows that kind of started the whole downside, you know, downfall of Mitch Clark in this fight. Um, on fight pass, Arjun Buller defeated Luis Enrique via unanimous decision, 29-28 across the board. This was a crappy heavyweight fight. And kicking everything off, Cajun Johnson defeated Adriano Martins via knockout in the third round. One punch, baby. I was shocked that Adriano Martins kept falling for the combination that Johnson used to finish him because he landed that more than once. I'm just really and truly shocked that he never picked up on that. I thought he was a better fighter than that. All right, as for Glenn versus Tucker. First of all, Rick Glenn looked good. I, I want to I preface everything else I'm about to say by focusing for just a minute on Rick Glenn being a really good fighter. Because uh, Daniel Cormier brought this up on commentary. Frequently in fights like this that get lopsided, they spend a lot of time praising the guy who's surviving just for surviving rather than talking about the guy kicking his ass. So a lot of credit to Rick Glenn who came in against a touted prospect with a legitimate skill set and shut him down. This was a really good performance from Rick Glenn. I, I, everything else I'm about to say, I want to make sure I got out there that Rick Glenn is a bit of a badass and he did a phenomenal job last night. The reason some one of those scores was 
and even the 30-25, that third round, I had a 10-7. This fight should have been stopped. The, the second round was a 10-8. All right, let's start there. Second round, 10-8 round for Rick Glenn. There's a, they could have stopped this fight in the second. It would have been a little, I mean, I wasn't calling for it necessarily, but it could have happened. It should have happened between rounds if, you know, Gavin Tucker's corner had an ounce of, you know, moral credibility or ethical responsibility, given that their job is to protect their fighter first and foremost. It should have stopped a minute and 90 seconds to two minutes into the third round when Gavin Tucker was on his back getting his face smashed in. And if his corner were not a bunch of amoral jackass meatheads, they would have thrown in the towel. If the referee, I want to yell at the referee separately. I'm going to pause myself right there for a second. This fight should have been stopped. The referee should have stopped this fight. At any number of points in the third round. And instead, a promising fighter took a full five minutes of abuse to the head that could, that has, that same type of beating has A, killed men in the past, and B, significantly altered career trajectories, if nothing else. Okay, this referee, here's what really kills me about this. All right, not only was this referee incompetent and grossly negligent in letting this fight continue, grossly. First, this is the same commission, the Edmonton Combative Sports Commission, that sanctioned Tim Haig fighting, you know, weeks after getting violently knocked out, him getting knocked out again and, you know, subsequently dying. I believe this referee was actually a pallbearer at Tim Haig's funeral. This jackass buried a friend and then proceeded to not at all consider the welfare of a man getting his face crushed. That's a special kind of stupid. I can't, without delving into profanity, I can't phrase it any other way, and I'm just trying not to here. This This was abhorrent. This was fundamentally abhorrent. I am a fan of violence. This is my sport. This is what I like spending my free time doing, watching grown people beat each other for money. This is, and I make no apologies as a general for enjoying violence. I don't. Even me, you know, even people like me, fans of not just this sport, but like violence in this sport, found that, that third round uncomfortable to watch. I even winced all that much when, you know, Corey Hill or Anderson Silva shattered their shins. This made me uncomfortable. This commission is a joke. And bear in mind, the, uh, like the province of Alberta uh, farms out athletic commission duty on like a city-by-city basis rather than just for the whole province. So, you know, other cities in Alberta, Calgary, for example, have competent commissions. Edmonton, not so much. The commission's a joke. That referee should never be allowed to officiate again. This wasn't missing a foul, which is bad enough. This wasn't a late stoppage, which are bad enough. 
This wasn't even, you know, thinking a guy was tapping when he wasn't, which is bad enough. For a full three minutes, you watched a man hit in the face and and for some reason thought this should continue. Shame on you. Shame on that ref. Shame on his corner for allowing that. And shame on the commission for sanctioning that type of referee. You have you people have you the again Edmonton Combative Sports Commission. You are now the the you have surpassed like Texas as the worst commissions I am aware of. This was a travesty. You all should be ashamed of yourselves. And I mean that fundamentally. This should bother you in the morning when you look in the mirror, knowing that you were a part of this and contributed to it. Shame on the lot of you. That's all I've got. I apologize to either of you if I stole your thunder as far as that fight went. Um, Jeff, I'll start with you. Uh, any other highlights from that from that group of prelims? Anything you want to talk about? Excuse me. I thought Vieja looked really good against Sarah McMahon, um, and I was pulling for Sarah McMahon to win that fight too because I thought she was very close to maybe getting another title shot. But Vieja looked very good. Uh, I like Rick Glenn, but man, that. What upsets me about the way that fight went on the prelims is just the way the referee was just, it looked like he wasn't even checking on the fighter. It looked like, I don't know what it looked like to you guys, but to me it looked like he was asleep standing up. And he wasn't even concerned about that this guy was getting so many unanswered punches. And it looked like he wasn't even, it looked like he was getting close. And then, I don't know, it looked, I don't know, it looked like he was checking on the, the, how how inter- intricately weave the canvas of the mat was or something <laughs> but um it looked like he just didn't care if um Gavin Tucker was going to survive that fight or not and it doesn't matter that Tucker was able to still get up and you know was was sort of like beating his chest at the end look i'm not saying Gavin Tucker isn't a tough some bitch he most definitely is but that doesn't mean the fight shouldn't have been stopped which it most definitely that 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 last round I'm sorry guys if there if a 10-1 round exists that that's what that round was that was a 10-1 round or that's what it should have been because there's no way that fight should not have been stopped by that point it was disgu- it was despicable disgusting and pathetic and if they want to sue me for, for um, libel, they can go right ahead, and I would win in court because I am not wrong. It's only libel if it's not true. Bear in mind. Um, all right, Pat, uh, and any other anything uh, from the group of prelims your burning desires? I'm going to start by saying – I liked Sarah Moross on The Ultimate Fighter when she was on that show. I thought she had a lot of potential. I like seeing her realize it with a really beautiful finish. Uh, good on Ketlin Vieira doing what we figure a good fighter is supposed to do to Sarah McMahon at this point. Sarah is just essentially a gatekeeper. She does not have the ability to rise beyond that at this point in her career. And unless she does a major overhaul with camps, she's never going to get past where she is right now. She just doesn't have the tools. Rick Glenn versus Gavin Tucker is everything that can be wrong with any combat sport in one fight. You have a referee 
who does not do his job, which is first and foremost to protect the fighters. When things are necessary for him to step in to protect a fighter and be the focal point of fighter safety, he failed. He did nothing to protect Gavin Tucker, who was too tough for his own good in this fight, to go unconscious or to, or to tap out or to say, I can't keep going. Shame on him. Shame on him for knowing what he knows, being a friend of Tim Hague's and the circumstances surrounding his death, being a pallbearer at his funeral. Shame on the corner of Gavin Tucker, who are there to protect their fighter when he cannot protect himself. And instead, you let him take a pronounced, vicious beating for three minutes unanswered. He did not answer with anything for over three minutes in that final round. You could have stepped in in between the second and third round and stopped it, and there would have been people who said you should have given him a chance. Well, guess what? Those people aren't in there trying to help him in his career and trying to help with his progression as a fighter. As his core, as his trainers, you are supposed to be there to help his career. You are his chief seconds. That means you back him up when necessary, and you step in when necessary. Instead, you allowed him to get pummeled viciously, to take more unnecessary punishment than I've probably ever seen in an MMA fight to this point since it's become regulated and sanctioned nearly universally. You are all scum because you showed you are there for nothing other than to take this kid's money and not give a damn about him, and you should be barred from participating in mixed martial arts on any level, be it professional or amateur, for your conduct and how you handled that fight. Shame on you. You are all the biggest pieces of shit who ruin this sport and who get this sport into trouble and into mainstream press when things like Tim Hague's death do happen due to gross negligence when you are supposed to be the factor stepping in there and stopping these things. All of you can fucking rot. And fuck off. All right. On that note, I would like to thank everyone who followed along with my coverage on 411 Mania. I know a couple of you were uh, in the path of Hurricane Irma. Uh, Spanky Ham specifically. Hope you're still okay out there, buddy. Uh, Thanks to all of you for commenting. Um, I can't remember this gentleman's screen name. Somebody asked about my, like, vendetta against uh, Face the Pain. I want to just say very briefly, while I stand by my position, I apologize if I came off as condescending. I did not intend to, you know, much as I hate that song, A, it has a place in the annals of UFC history. It should be, I maintain it should be in the past at this point, but that's part of my beef. But to everyone who likes it, musical taste is deeply personal. If you like it, if you have, you know, years of positive association with it, if you listen to it while powerlifting at the gym because that's what you do, I don't know. Party on. I can live and let live. You know. So I I, I just wanted to say on you know on this forum here, I apologize if I came off as being condescending or over or you know abusive or combative or something like that. I didn't. Not my intention. And I should have clarified elements of that point in what I wrote. So just that's been bugging me personally. So I wanted to say it here. So. 
again, thank you for reading. Thank you for your comment. And I do, I do want to apologize if I came across that way, because again, not my intention. All right. Um, moving on. Next Saturday, there will be a great boxing bout. There will also be an MMA event. Uh, I will be covering the MMA event. Um, UFC Fight Night 216 from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, you know, there's, uh, there's like two fights, uh, maybe three here, that I'm half looking forward to. Um, I don't think the main event I is one of two. them. Uh, I just saw on the prelims that uh, Christoph Yotko and Uriah Hall are fighting, and uh, I think Yotko's going to, like, smoke him. So I'm, I'm potentially there on that one. Anyway, the main event, former UFC middleweight champion Luke Rockhold is returning uh, his first fight back since being knocked out by Michael Bisbing. And he's fighting David Branch. <sighs> David Branch is a good fighter. He is a boring as sin fighter, but he's a good fighter. If Luke Rockhold has maintained the level he had when he was in strike force, much less, you know, once he kind of made the jump to the UFC, he should run over David Branch. That said, the type of loss that Luke Rockhold suffered to Michael Bisbing has been known to significantly alter fighters' abilities. Be that confidence, be that decision-making in cage, be that, you know, the ability to remember what street you live on. Because he got knocked out cold. Maybe just the embarrassment of being legitimately knocked unconscious by Michael Bisbing, of all people. I don't know. But he should win this fight. Um, Dave Branch has a pretty significant winning streak going. Uh, again, he's, a, he's, a very, he's only lost three times in his career. And he got knocked out on a slam by, Ger- by Gerald Harris, which he should have been able to avoid, but he also might not have seen coming. He got knee-barred by Husamar Paul Harris, which, okay, you know, Paul Harris kind of does that to some people. And he lost to Anthony Johnson, of all people. He's a good fighter. Again, I think he's just boring. And I wasn't entirely sold on him beating Yotko in his last fight. Uh I think Luke Rockhold's going to steamroll him. Uh, Rockhold's a better striker. Rockhold's a better wrestler. Rockhold's a better grappler. Rockhold has a better record of competition. There is no... Like, I know this sport is fundamentally insane. There is no reasonable course of action that leads to David Branch with his skill set winning this fight. Uh, Mostly, I hope this ends quickly. because. I, I just David Branch fights that go long just get worse as they go. Um, that's my prediction, and I, I, there's a chance I'll again. We haven't seen Rockhold since he got knocked out, so there is an outside chance I will wind up eating crow on that because of how vehemently I've announced my position. But so be it. Uh, well, it won't be the first time, and it won't be the last time. Uh, Jeff, I'll start with you here. Is there any reason to believe David Branch is going to win this fight? My silence is telling you all you need to know. There's only one fight on this card, in all honesty, I really care about, and it has nothing to do with this fight. Um, 
this is a showcase and I don't really care. David Branches, as you pointed out, like watching paint dry. I want to see Justin Ledette fight in the opening bout of the show. I want to see Justin Ledette fight against an undefeated guy who knocks people out and is rushing, which is awesome. This is the fight I want to see. This is my main event. Justin Ledette is fighting in the opening bout, just so you guys know, so he can actually watch the Triple G Canelo Alvarez fight, which is hilarious and awesome at the same time. Honestly, God, like looking at this card. As long as Justin Ledette wears his I'd rather be boxing t-shirt, I will be happy. Just because it's I would yeah, and I, I, David Branch has more than a puncher's chance. Um, if Luke Rockhold gets lazy or overconfident like he did against Michael Bisbing, you know, he shouldn't underestimate a guy like David Branch because, look, David Branch has been fighting a long time. He has a lot of experience. I'm not underestimating him. I just, I just could not care less about the fight, no, I'm to not be honest. You, hey, I'm hey, not hang on, Pat. Let him go. I, I don't, I'm not well, saying talk. you're wrong for, uh, for not caring about the fight either. I'm just <laughs> offering my... So we're all kind I, of on the same page on that one. <laughs> I just think... Here's, I, just, I don't like that Rockhold has sort of put himself on the shelf this long. And... I think um, arbitrar- a little arbitrarily, but I'm glad he's fighting again, and I hope we see uh, Luke Rockhold back to form for this fight because he is one of my favorite fighters to watch in general. Can, can I, I ask both of you guys a, a, quest- a question related to Rockhold? Sure. Since, since the loss to, to Bisping, I haven't seen him do a lot of things that indicate that he really is – committed to his career as a fighter. I'm not saying he's, he's not there. I'm not saying he's not taking things seriously. But before that fight, Luke Rockhold used to do a lot of things as far as open workouts. He used to always talk about his camps. And I like Luke Rockhold. And I, I generally you used to always look forward to his fights. He kind of checked out for a while here. So is it, do you guys think that there's that question of does Luke Rockhold really still want to do this? I think there definitely is, and I think that's why that's my main interest in this fight. Like, is he really still interested in fighting, and is he serious about making another run for the title? Because he definitely can, uh, but I, you know, I guess we'll see. Sometimes. Now, would you, by that same sense, would you also agree then that this is sort of a trap fight? Because as we pointed out, David Branch is not an interesting fighter to watch largely in, in long doses. I don't but at think the same time, as Robert pointed out, he's got a legitimate a skill set fight. that's trouble for anybody. I don't think it's a trap fight. I think Rockhold, he's been on the shelf for a while. He needs to get back into the mix, and he needs to, he needs to fight and get a win again. And I don't, I don't really like David – I didn't like David Branch's uh, return to the UFC. But look, I mean, the guy – the guy earned his the, spot back on the UFC roster. Well, this is um, this is kind of what I mean by a trap fight, Jeff. And maybe maybe we just use different uh, understandings of it. For me, I, it's more I, situation I, no, of no. I don't think it's a trap. I, it's more I situation think, of if you're if you're Luke Rockhold and you've been used to fighting name guy, name guy, name guy, name guy that you can sink your teeth into. You're excited. They've been title fights, and your first fight back is on a lower level card against David Branch as opposed to well, Chris Weidman. Michael it's the main Bisping. event, and he's fighting, he's fighting a guy who's beaten a lot of good guys and a lot of tough guys. I know, I'm not saying he hasn't, but is David Branch that exciting name that a guy will really get up for when he gets the fight announcement the same way you if, would get? If, that, that, if, that's, if that's the case, then 
Luke Rockhold doesn't belong in the UFC. And that's what I believe. You can't, t- you can't take that attitude about any fight. That's how that's, you, that's, I, what I'm, that's what I'm saying. Do you think to me, that's a losing attitude. That's a losing attitude. And I agree with you completely. I think it's a losing attitude no matter who, who it is that has it versus whoever they're fighting. But based on what we're seeing, I don't think that's necessarily an outside possibility here. Uh, if, personally, maybe I'm wrong, if, but Robert, what do you what do you think here? Uh, okay, okay, hang on. I think there. I think this is again. I've vehemently stated that I think Luke Rockhold will and should win this. If he is not taking this seriously, I still have a hard time seeing Branch win. Not because Branch isn't good but because of where his skill set matches up with Rockhold. However, he could very well win if Rockhold has been extremely negligent with his training. And if you don't take David Branch seriously, again, regardless of him being a fighter who is not exciting, you better at least take, you better at least prepare to make a statement at his expense. Because if Luke Rockhold, I mean, even if he comes back and wins an uninspired decision, is anybody really going to get up for him potentially re-entering the title picture, which is confused enough as it is, by eking out a decision against David Branch? I mean, he's I'm got not. to he's got to come out and make a statement if that's what he really wants. See, if he comes out and is content to just Philippe. get by. Uh, I think we'll we're seeing very we'll, we'll be a lot be closer to the end like of this. Like his career. fight against Philippou, it, it should be like the fight with Philippou after yeah. he got kicked in the head by Vitor Belfort. He didn't treat that he didn't treat that as a as a trap fight. He knew he had to make a statement for that fight because he was coming off an embarrassing loss. He should be treating this as the same way because it's a similar situation. He. And after the fight with Belfort, he went on one of the most amazing runs this sport's ever seen. He definitely has that in him, so he shouldn't be treating this as a, he should be treating this as a showcase for him. Okay, I had I, I won the belt, I lost it to my rival Michael Bisbing. I'm back and uh, I'm going to go on the warpath back to get that title. That's what he should be doing. Otherwise, yeah, he doesn't belong in the sport and he doesn't belong in the UFC. Yeah, that's the mentality you have to take. So I, I, I hope he does. I, I really do, because otherwise that's going to be an ugly fight. All right. One of the two fights I'm looking forward to, unequivocally, the co-main event. And remember, fan of violence. So the thought of Platinum Mike Perry squaring up with Tiago Alves makes me very happy. These two are going to take years off of each other's lives. Um, both these guys are strikers. They're both they're both violent fighters. I mean, win, lose, or draw. Uh, Mike Perry packs a little more power, but isn't quite as diverse. He's coming off of that really big elbow win over Jake Ellenberger, but you know Ellenberger at this point. Um, Tiago Alves beat Patrick Cote uh, to break a two-fight losing streak. I get these two are going to go out there. They're going to try to hurt each other and. I am. I'm all for that. Uh, this is the this is the fight that I am probably most looking forward to as a fan. Uh, these two are going to get in each other's face and they're going to throw down. And I look forward to it. I'm not sure Tiago Alves has enough in the tank at this point. 
But Mike Perry had better be prepared to make some adjustments because if he tries to just get Alves to brawl with him, there's a, Alves could out-technique him and just beat him up while he makes Perry miss. I'm still leaning towards Perry, but this is the one I'm excited for as a fan. This is the one I'm looking forward to. I really, I really hope these two deliver when the fight comes, and again, I'm picking Perry here. Um, Pat, again... I know there's like again two fights at best you're half looking forward to on this card. Would this happen to be one of them because these two are just going to try to hurt each other and not care that much about getting hit back? Yeah, it takes something like this for me to really care about Tiago Alves fight at this point. Um, you know, he used to be at one point in time a very highly regarded welterweight for good reason. He was putting on good fights. He was winning high-level fights. And then he just dropped off and he stopped caring about fighting and he put a lot of lackluster effort for it's not just in fights, but in camps too. And I lost interest as a result of that. And I don't think that was wrong. Um, this fight, I, again, I don't think Tiago is at a point in his career where he really is, is pushing for a title shot or really making a go of it. But this is a fight I can get behind just because the level of violence in it is probably going to be very significant. I like Mike Perry here. I think he's just sort of a, a younger, less punished version of what Alves used to be. An action guy who looks to come forward, put a hurting on somebody, and walk away with the W. And I wish we had more guys like that, but with a higher skill level. Um, this is going to be fun while it lasts. I don't see it going the distance. And I think Mike Perry will finish it. And because this is one of only two fights I'm really invested in on the card – I'm going to try to just throw some plugs in real quick, um, if you don't mind. No, go ahead. After this, I'm just uh, after this, I'm just going to read the rest of this card, and then well, I'm going to give Jeff his say, and then we're just going to do burning desires for the, uh, what amounts to the rest of this card. Okay, so uh, this past Thursday night, Mark Radulich and I on the very uh, famous Radulich and Broadcasting Network brought to you our second season and final season review on TV party of Dennis Leary's Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll. Um, we were not as thrilled with this season as we were with the first, but there was some good mixed in there. If you'd like to hear it, go ahead on over to the Rally and Broadcasting Network, which you are currently listening to us right now through. And you can hear that show as well as plenty of others we've done in the archives. Um, coming up at the end of this month, we will also be doing our usual Fuller House off-season review on TV Party. This will be season three of the show. They go to an exotic locale named Japan. There are plenty of cameo appearances. So it looks like a lot of fun, but you will hear our full review on that. I believe we're scheduled for September 29th. I could be wrong, but be on the lookout for that. And that's all I've got right now, gentlemen. It has been a pleasure as always. Thank you, and good night. All right. Night, Pat. Okay, Jeff, uh, the co-main event here, Tiago Alves and... Mike Perry, you know, uh, well, thoughts you have I on that? Well, I kind of have to get going now, uh, Robert, okay. so I will no, leave okay. to Any, it. Anything else you would like to say, plugs, go ahead and... Uh, well, one uh, thing I would like to say, I want to give my hats and props off uh, to Len Wine, uh, the legendary comics creator, writer, editor. He has passed away today uh, at the ah, age of 69. Um, you know, details still pending, but we have lost a, we've lost a legend today, people. Uh, Lem Wine, uh, he's the one, he gave us Wolverine, he gave us Swamp Thing, he was also the editor for such historic, you know, things as 
the Alan Moore and uh, Dave Gibbons run of Swamp Thing in the 80s. And also, uh, he was the editor behind Alan Moore's Watchmen. Uh, so, so you know, he's been he's he's a part of comics history. He's uh, he's a legend. Um, he made Wolverine possible. I mean, Wolverine is a global pop culture icon. He gave us that character for the first time. Um, not only that, he's been a part of some of our favorite like cartoons and animation of our childhood as well. Specifically, the X Men animated and Batman animated TV shows of the '90s, and, and many others. You know, too, almost too numerous to mention. He's created many other iconic classic characters that are also really too numerous to mention. But uh, we've lost a great one. We've lost a giant today. I've I've met I've met uh, Lem Wine in person. I mean, the dude is. I mean, the dude was great guy just a a really nice approachable guy and um i'm very sad he's no longer with us but um if i can say anything right now he's he he has left his mark on history um of media and entertainment that will never be forgotten and will always be remembered and uh i hope he will continue to get the credit and accolades he deserves as one of the most important and significant uh, creators in the, in, in the hit, not just the history of comics and the history of anything. Um, so that um, in a bit of a somber note to go out on, but just something that's been on my mind and I, I just wanted to address, but um, uh, check out uh, my coverage of the UFC 215 conference call and how I had Ray Borg uh, and Demetrius Johnson pegged. Sorry guys. It's the truth. Uh, I had this whole thing pegged well before it happened. Um, I will be reviewing American Assassin and Kingsman, the Golden Circle this week for Movies TV, so be on the lookout for that. Check out my interview with Griffin Newman of The Tick, also in Movies TV, and a bunch of other cool stuff. But, uh, yeah, very sad about Lem Wine. So thank you for all you have given to us, Lem Wine. And uh, thank you, Robert. I'll, I'll see you soon. Uh, thank you, Jeff. I'll see you next week. Uh, let me just run down the rest of this card here for you people. Um, we have Hector Lombard versus Anthony Smith. <sighs> Am I going to pick Hector Lombard? You'd think I'd learn. You'd think I'd learn. Guy hasn't won a fight since he beat Jake Shields. Not officially. I mean, he beat uh, Josh Berkman, but then failed a drug test. Uh, no, I can't pick Hector Lombard. Uh, I'll go with Anthony Smith there. <laughs> I'd be terribly wrong. Wait a minute. No, no. Yeah, okay, no, sorry. I was confusing Anthony Smith with uh, Trevor Smith. Though I, I will take Anthony Smith in pretty much a heartbeat here. Um, Gregor Gillespie and Jason Gonzalez. Uh, this is Gonzalez's third fight in the UFC. I got knocked out by Drew Dober. Jeez. He's young. Gregor Gillespie's pretty young, too. I seem to recall. Yeah, um, I'll go with Gillespie here. Actually, Gillespie's got a really good base uh, for you know, good wrestler, good powerful puncher at times. So uh, I'll go with Gillespie there. Uh, Kamaro Usman versus Sergio Moraes. Kamaro Usman will win this fight uh, via unanimous decision, probably at least one thirty twenty-five scorecard because he tends to rack those up. Uh, sorry, thirty twenty-six. At least one. He'll at least get one 10-8 round. He will probably not finish, and no one will care, because he's Kamaro Usman. 
Um, Pat mentioned it as the other fight he's really looking forward to at heavyweight. Justin Ledet versus Dmitry Sosnovsky. Excuse me. Sosnovsky. Moron. Sosnovsky. You'd think I'd learn how to pronounce these things better. Um, Sosnovsky has finished a lot of guys. He only has two decisions. He's 10-0. Yeah, this one should be a lot of fun for as long as it lasts. Um, Looking forward to that one. On the prelims, Tony Martin is fighting Olivier Aubame-Mercier. I hope you like fence wrestling, guys, because guess what you're going to get out of this fight? Um, Out wrestling, Tony Martin is a very tough proposition. I'm not – I'm hesitant to pick against him, but – just because that's what Obama Mercier does, but yeah, sure, I'll go with Obama Mercier. He's again, he, do, he these two do basically the same thing. I just think Obama Mercier might be a little bit. Anthony Hamilton is fighting Daniel Spitz. This has to be the last gasp for Anthony Hamilton. I mean, he's never won two fights in a row in the UFC. His UFC record is three and four, three and five. Um, his only wins, let's see, he beat Ruan Potts, who's not in the UFC. He beat Damian Grabowski, who I think is no longer in the UFC either. He beat Daniel Omialanchuk, but he's lost to Alexei Olyanik, Todd Duffy, ugh, Shamil Abdurahimov, Francis Ngannou, and he got knocked out by Marcel Fortuna. I mean, he outweighed by some 50 pounds. I'll go with Hamilton. I feel like an idiot for picking him, but I will. At middleweight, Christoph Yatko was fighting Uriah Hall. I'm actually taking Yatko here. Both guys are strikers, but Hall is wild, whereas Yatko is refined and more technical. Hall really needs a win. He's lost his last three fights. Now, somewhat in his defense, he lost to Robert Whitaker, best middleweight in the world, Brunson, very good, and Gegard Mousasi, one of the best middleweights in the world who should still be with the UFC, but they don't want to pay him. But he really needs a win. I'm um, at Bantamweight. This is kind of a sleeper fight, actually. Luke Sanders versus Felipe Aranches. Um Sanders coming off of that really disappointing. He was beating up Yuri Alcantara, but then didn't guard against the knee bar. Um, and Arantes, Arantes is really... He's a journeyman, kind of 500-level fighter. I'll go with Luke Sanders here, but again, that's kind of a sleeper fight. At our lone fight pass fight, Jason Sago versus Gilbert Burns. These two are probably going to grapple, and Gilbert Burns is a much, much better grappler than Jason Sago. Um, Yeah, look, Sago's a black belt and has a good grappling background, a good MMA grappling background. Not great, not great, but good. Um, Gilbert Burns is a former world champion, multiple-time world champion in gi and no gi. If this hits the mat, Gilbert Burns is probably going to run him over. Um, yeah, I'll take Burns there. But uh, tune in for that as far as my coverage goes. I hope you will uh, again come follow along. I might need the company for this one. Uh, and I... I hope at least one of you in the comments section for this will kind of keep me updated on uh, Alvarez Golovkin because I think that's going to be a great fight. So I'll try to find it after the fact. I'm kind of sad I'm not watching it. Li- I won't be able to watch it live, but 
Uh, so thanks to all of you guys in advance. Um, as for plugs for me, again, I like the third time I say it, but I'll say it again anyway. Thank you to everyone who read and followed along with my coverage of UFC 215. Thank you for everyone who read the report. I am more than aware of the sheer number of places you could go for essentially the same service I provide. Uh, some of them are much better than I am, and I'm, you know, I try to improve. So, you know, but uh, again, I know that there are some that are better. So, thank you for choosing what I do as a supplement to your MMA experience and fandom. It's perpetually, again, humbling and motivating. So thank you all very much. Um, Tuesday, actually last Tuesday, Mark Radlich and I reviewed the Marvel's Inhumans IMAX event. Listen to our review. Do not see the film. It's not even a film. It's, like, it's a television pilot. They're conning you into paying to see. Uh, anyway, so you can listen to our review of that. Um, this Tuesday, Mark Radlich and I will be reviewing It, the adapt- adaptation of the Stephen King novel. Um, Mark doesn't like scary things, so this is one of my rare instances of being able to get one over on him as far as the schedule. Uh, I don't know what Mark thinks. I hope he's staying safe. He lives in Florida, so he's you know, going to be dealing with hurricane, <laughs> hurricane for the near future, so I hope he's, he and his family are safe, well, and healthy. Uh, again, Tuesday, he and I will be reviewing that film. Here's a preview. Uh, I freaking loved it. Uh, we'll go into detail and you know, go through the regular stick for that show. I hope you'll tune in for that. Saturday, again, coverage for UFC Fight Night 116. Uh, it'll be an event. Hopefully, hopefully the fights deliver. It's underwhelming on paper. Hopefully they deliver in practice. Next Sunday, make sure I am correct about this. Yes. Next Sunday, the 17th, we will review Fight Night 116 and preview Fight Night 117. Gomi is on this card. How is Takenori Gomi still fighting? That, that, that blows my mind. Dude's lost four in a row. His last win was in 2014 over Isaac Valley Flag. Blows my mind. Are they in China or they're in Japan? Okay, this this has to be it for him. Um, the main event is a rematch between Shogun and Ovin Saint Preux. Uh OSP knocked him out in less than a minute the last time they fought. Uh, I, Claudia Gadelli and Jessica Andrade relevant strawweight fight again. Gomi versus the Maestro Dongyun Kim. Anything else here worth mentioning at this moment? Um, the worst, possibly the worst featherweight in the UFC is fighting. Oh, Go Kansaki makes his debut. Really? Yeah, for those of you who don't know, Go Kansaki is a multiple-time uh, K1 Grand Prix champion. He's one of the best heavyweight kickboxers in the world. I mean, his only loss is recently... In kickboxing, he lost in 2010 to Alistair Overeem. Uh, his arm was broken, so that's injury-related. He lost to Badr Hari. I think he got that one back at some point. He lost to Semi Schilt in 2012. That's a little... Uh, Semi was still okay. And he lost to Rico Verhoeven, the best heavyweight kickboxer in the world. 
But yeah, since 2010, those are his only since the start of 2010, those are his only losses. Again, one of the better heavyweight kickboxers there is. Um I I was curious about the UFC signing him because his UFC record is 0 and 1. And he's fighting a pretty legitimate light heavyweight, well, sort of, in Henrique da Silva. He's on a three-fight losing streak. Boy, Saki better win that. All right, so we'll be, we'll get a free a full preview of that event next week. Uh, again, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time here on the 411 Ground and Pound Radio Show. Thank you all so very much for tuning in and listening. Uh, thank you for again, the support. Uh, thank you. It, it means the world. Again, I know there's a lot of MMA podcasts out there. And, again, that you choose this as supplemental knowledge is flattering, humbling, uh, baffling at times, in all honesty. Um, But thank you. Thank you very much for your patronage. I will see you all next week. Uh, Many thanks to both Pat and Jeff for being here and contributing to the show this week. Uh, They both went through their plugs, so feel free to follow their work. Uh, You should. Uh, That's it for me. Until next time, everybody, please continue to be well, be safe, and behave.